Hi, I'm Kane Norton. I am the Managing Director at Cosive. I come from a vulnerability development, uh, sysadmin, and then more recently, I guess, uh, doing threat intel into the financial sector background. I'm one of the co-founders of Cosive. We started in 2015, and we specialise in trying to solve the difficult problems for Australian and New Zealand organisations. And I'm Tash Postolovsky, and I'm helping out with marketing at Cosive. So let's get started. What are the benefits of having a threat intel program? Unfortunately, and this might be a little bit of a contentious view, but a lot of people, their security strategy is a shopping list. You know, it's like one of those, uh, you know, hotted up turbocharged cars. You've got the little list of you, you know, you say to people, what's your strategy? You're like, oh, you know, we're going to buy one of this. We're going to buy one of that. We're going to put it all in this uh, seam tool. We're going to use this for orchestration. And it's not a strategy or a plan, but ultimately you need to know what you're planning on defending against and how good your current defenses are and what the delta is in order to be able to actually do something about it. And unless you know what's going out there in the world, you're, you know, ultimately you're getting led by salespeople or marketing to know where you think you should be focused. And that's not necessarily accurate. Threat Intel was a bit of a thing that was pushed by everyone not that long ago, the same as like machine learning or doing security on the blockchain or whatever else. You end up chasing fads and quite often it's product focused. Whereas if you go back to fundamentals and you look at the risk against organizations like your own, if you find something has happened to someone like you, either in terms of they're geographically like you, they're in a similar sector, they're of a similar size, if you can find out what happened to them, what worked, what didn't work, then you can go, okay, so how would we be suited to defend against this? Um, is there a particular new type of attack or defense that we could do? Uh, and quite often that stuff's cheap, cheap in terms of expenditure. It can be manually uh, expensive in terms of effort. Like uh, if you said we won't, we'll get rid of every externally facing remote desktop lock-in from all of our Windows servers. There won't be any of them facing the internet. It doesn't require buying a blinky light machine. It's going to involve a lot of pain in terms of finding all the right areas and making them change to a better business practice but it also massively reduces your chance of getting ransomware if someone has a bad password getting rid of local administrator if you look at sort of commonalities between various attacks they ultimately somehow get onto a machine and then they escalate their privileges if people are running as a local administrator then that's really easy those sorts of things even just what you do about antivirus alerts all of these things that you can help inform with threat intelligence mean that you're actually focusing what's going to matter most likely to you and it's not a science it's a you know it's some you know they call it tradecraft with intelligence and it, but ultimately it is it's you know it's not an art it's not a science it's sort of somewhere in between but it, it can be quite opinionated but it's looking at what's happening over the horizon to try and prepare yourself for what you're seeing now a lot of people and i i tend to be of a mind to treat it somewhat strategically i think a lot of people have a focus on finding, I guess, very precise, but also not terribly uh, long lasting, you know, what I call a brittle thing, like a, an IP address. If you get a report from six months ago from attacking at someone else and you'll go, oh, okay, here's what we've learned about it. Is this IP address is used by the attacker? Like by all means, look back at your logs from six months ago and see if you're seeing it. But if that's what you're relying on for current detection, like why would the attacker be using the same address from six months ago? It's just you know, ridiculous. You don't need to. It's so much cheaper and easier just to have another system at that point. It's, you know, you might see overlap if you're in the same uh, campaign as somebody else at a previous time, but realistically, you know, looking at the, the way that they attack the 
types of tools that they use or the techniques that they use. Ultimately, yeah, the, the TTPs, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that they use, those are things that you can learn from. But uh, a lot of people drill down that little bit too close and are looking at the exact specific, you know, what is the exact tool and the exact version that they used? Okay, have we seen that? What's where this IP address or this domain name? They need to sort of zoom out a little bit if they're actually going to learn something from it. Where do threat intel programs typically go wrong? There's a few things that people fall into. Firstly, I guess priorities. If you've got multiple priorities, you don't really have any priorities. Uh, it's an expensive activity to go into, which is something we often warn people. And it usually involves your generalist staff who can do a bit of everything. And then they tend to be the ones who get drawn into other things that are deemed to be yeah, a high priority at the time. And, and quite often, you know, Intel doesn't get done because they're busy sort of scrambling to deal with something that the board wants to know about or an investigation or a SOC uplift. What are some other common pitfalls that affect threat intel programs? The idea of I think, collecting particularly sort of low grade indicators like hashes and IP addresses and so on, and then keeping them forever and having a giant list of every phishing site the world's ever seen somewhere that you're matching against. And then, you know, having an alert occur whenever someone goes to a site that was maybe a domain that was used to host a phishing site four years ago, but is now a florist website or something still, um, those types of things tend to wear people down. You need to be able to downgrade your reliability or applicability of different types of things depending on, you know, like a phishing site is two weeks after it was a phishing site that you might want to know that it matches just so you can sort of exclude it or it might provide some context, but you don't want to be freaking out and sounding an alarm. Yeah, so being careful what you provide through to people and having the ability to age things out is definitely very useful. Uh, just generally context, particularly when you're dealing with technical indicators. Uh, this is a trap I see all the time from sort of centralized, you know, bit sort of government, police bodies, whatever else, when uh, people put out advisories, they'll say, you know, have a description of here's a bunch of text of about things that have been going on. And they'll have an appendix, which is a giant list of, you know, files or IP addresses or, you know, uh, other odds and ends. And the context of those particular things is not always clear. And nearly universally, there'll be like a, some sort of public uh, VPN endpoint or something that was included in there that it's the context that would make it an indicator of badness, depending on a period of time and a couple of other things, whereas the saying oh this particular port number like that's it might be bad it might be perfectly normal it's going to make people freak out if they don't understand that uh, you need to be able to sort of provide the context rather than just uh, here's seven different addresses you need to sort of give a, a time window or a, a why because the idea of things being good or bad it's it's always depending on time but there's also degrees of is this just like annoying is it like just janitorial you should clean this stuff up like computer hygiene or is it oh no panic call the siso and if you're providing threat intel to people without that information that means that people end up spinning their wheels particularly if you're a trusted entity because how do you you know someone gets this from you you might have it as a bit of a low fidelity thing that you think people should look for but because of you being the source they're going to panic if they see it so that that's definitely one for people sort of uh, facing externally more so with yeah more so with technical things oh the other big one is for internally like where you can totally blow your credibility is if you end up sort of going all chicken little and you stamp your feet and say that you know the organization must patch this within 24 hours or the sky will fall we're doomed we'll be bankrupt that's it you know it'll just be nothing but you know basically level to the car park because you can 
you can get away with that once, but if nothing happens, your credibility's shot. You can't sort of throw your weight around. You need to sort of say, you know, I would, you wouldn't necessarily uh, put the words in, but you should be able to sort of include the the uh, start a bit, you know, if I was you, dot, 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 somewhere in threat intel, you know, you can't sort of make demands and say like, you know, I feel like it's incredibly high priority. Um, also separating your opinions from your facts. Uh, you know, this was reported by this organization, we have a medium confidence that it's accurate or in many cases, even just saying like, I think I've provided a lot of value before by saying, here's something that someone said, I think it's totally made up. Just because you're also sort of going, here's something that you shouldn't worry about chasing your tail on because it's unlikely to be accurate. And you've got to know what, what you know and know what you think and be clear between the two in your writing. So we've talked about things like likelihood. Very rarely is there anything that you know to be true. It's a, you might have a high probability of being accurate, but you know, especially if it's coming from another party. Things like double reporting been a lot. It's like, oh, well, we're panicking because we've heard from four different people about this particular type of attack today that have all messaged us. If all four of them heard it from the same person and then just like shared it on because they wanted to help, then yeah, they've just amplified the message. It, someone made a mistake, but you've heard it from four partners. So you're like batting down the hatches. This is happening all over the place. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta know, you gotta know what you know and know what you don't know to uh, <laughs> paraphrase Rumsfeld, I guess. What should threat intel programs be focusing on? I think initially, like it's a pretty difficult thing to start. And the one that I tend to focus on for people is assuming that you've got a security operations center. And most places I would say that, uh, say, sake of argument, you've got a medium size or large organization. You've got 3000 alerts coming in each day from your, your SIEM tools or whatever you're using for alerting your EDR tools, CrowdStrike or whatever. You're getting a bunch of alerts coming in. How are you prioritizing them? If you've got say five analysts working on it, you've got say 2000, 3000 alerts. Your staff can't do that many. It doesn't work that way. You can't do 400 alerts a day with any sort of you know thinking involved. So how do you prioritize these alerts? You're doing it chronologically, alphabetically, just whatever the person happens to pick off the top when they first go back to check. Either way, you're going to end up with like hundreds, if not thousands left at the end of the day. So you, if you can use your threat intelligence program to do some sort of enrichment so that you actually can identify things that are like the, you know, oh no, panic, hit the big red button. Or uh, if you can categorize the alerts that you're seeing into a, we know what that is, it's a systemic problem, but we're okay with dealing with it later. Ultimately, it's about sort of uh, clustering things together. So instead of looking at 3,000 individual alerts, you're maybe looking at 10 classes of alert, or you know, you can sort of group them by what the problem is. Or this is to do with our password policy. This is, uh, you know, something that's mistuned, and we can we need to go back and deal with that later. Or these ones might be a valuable alert, but we don't have the telemetry that we need to actually do something about it. Being able to sort of uplift the data, and even if it's like antivirus alerts, like what does that alert likely mean? Is it something we need to actually do something about, or is it effectively maybe not a false positive, but something that we know is extremely low impact? So being able to provide that to what you're seeing right now means that you've actually got the ability to get intelligence on what's happening inside your organization and to your organization rather than the biggest mistake people fall into is they end up chasing apt you know, advanced persistent threats they're looking at the sort of apex predators the 
you know, fancy bears and cozy bears and combat crew and whatever else, all of these sort of glamorous attackers. And I uh, often liken it to people like, say, if you're, you know, you're interested in self-defense, you know, because you're concerned about, you know, someone attacking you and you start watching a lot of old like VHS tapes of, you know, Mike Tyson in the, in the 1990s and you go, oh, okay, when he's tired, he drops his left a bit. And like, you might learn some general ideas about boxing from watching old videos of Mike Tyson, but like, you're not going to get in the ring against Mike Tyson. He's not the sort of person that you need to be concerned about. You're worried about you know just trying to you know protect yourself trying to not get hit in the head trying to spot someone that's acting sus in the car park and a lot of people are very focused on those you know reading reports which are you know firstly they're historical they're nearly always from at least six months to a year ago uh secondly they're an organization that had someone who was big enough to invest the marketing to write a white paper on exactly what happened and uh and thirdly like it's got to be interesting enough for someone to bother writing it up you you will read about like a you know some amazing new attack from the Turla threat actors, but you won't read about some you know 16 year old moldovan kid who logged in using a well-known password into someone's network and just encrypted their file share in sharepoint and that's a lot more likely going to be what you see that's sort of you need to look at the sort of broader more applicable things rather than the minutiae of what is happening in the in the big end of town it's a lot more glamorous but it's not as useful in some cases you might look at the new once you get to a degree of aptitude you might look at uh the types of techniques they're starting to use because those will flow down to lesser threat actors or i mean maybe you do realize that if you're say a university i have a lot of uh respect and to some degree pity for universities because uh say they uh, seeing attacks where someone's trying to get uh, phishing of uh, their credentials and even if you know it's from Iran uh, well that could be an APT attack trying to steal access to confidential research on you know, material science or chemistry or something it could be people from an embargoed country trying to get uh, access to library accounts to be able to look at uh, scientific journals because they're not able to get them locally it could be effectively both where it's someone who is a student during the day who moonlights doing a bit of uh, state-sponsored threat activity so yeah it's a it's useful to understand the types of techniques they're using but getting fixated on those top tier actors is definitely something that people fall into and it's not a useful way to try and um, manage your time and resources uh, ultimately you want something that you can action and just saying here's what some big scary threat groups doing is not actionable for the most part how can threat intel programs find and keep the staff they need uh key staff is difficult you need a, you need good support from management you need the ability to i guess bear with the pain of not being able to pull those people into things but it's ultimately sort of a bit about tenacity and political capital in the people who are driving the threat intel program to make sure that those staff aren't sort of stolen here and there and having their their time eroded and their focus eroded and just finding staff is difficult in itself quite often the best people are people who know how things in your organization work as well as having the sort of the hard techie cyber side of things or having previous experience and those types of people are you know you're taking them from somewhere else ultimately if they're already internal or trying to recruit trying to recruit is hard anyway but trying to recruit someone who can actually do intel things broadly is very difficult even inside government most people deal with a segment of intelligence they might be in the collection side or on the analysis side someone who's in a small team and doing it all is uh, a bit of a change for a lot of those people and uh, to be honest we're not like america where they have like large bodies with thousands of people who are doing this day in day out and providing a pool of talent australia is relatively small in this regard so sometimes you need to sort of take the risk of uh, growing someone who has an interest in it who's perhaps already inside your security team and growing them into being an intel person rather than being able to sort of hire one direct off the market 
can planning and direction be a challenge for Threat Intel programs? Absolutely. There's some two ways that people tend to go with it, and both of which in isolation are a bit of a mistake. There's either being extremely uh, executive focused, where you're just chasing the news and sort of saying, here's what we've read about today, you know, look at this, or alternatively, they're curating a bunch of IP addresses and hashes and so on and giving them through to the security team in their SOC. And in both cases, you've got one sort of stakeholders that are sort of left on their own and they're not getting any value from it. The other big one is being actionable. And that's a, a key part of any intelligence program is you have to be able to be actionable. If the response to everything is, well, that's nice or thanks, then you can't really demonstrate any value. You're just letting people know what a problem is, but they don't really have any ability to do something about it. And that's a real challenge that most people face. What's the best way for threat intel programs to manage their direction? Usually what we tell people to do, and it's a pretty awkward sort of sales discussion. When we first talk to people about doing threat intel, we sort of say, you know, close your eyes. Imagine you've reached Nirvana. You've got the ultimate threat intel program. What outcomes are you getting from it? And then work your way backwards. Go, okay, here's the outcome. We're using it to do blah. Okay, so in order to do that, what type of uh, delivery do we need to be doing? In terms of, does it need to be short form? Does it need to be quick? Who does it go to? In order to be able to do that, what sort of analysis resources do we need? And then sort of from that, uh, what sort of data curation or tooling do we have? And what sort of collection have we got and then also who can set that tasking so if you work your way sort of backwards through the intelligence timeline and you focus on like how you're going to use this and how do you make it timely and sort of go backwards whereas a lot of people tend to go forwards where they sort of decide that they're going to start with a certain data source and then work out what they can do with it if they've got unique data sources that can be great but generally speaking people need to I guess start at what their destination should be and work their way back whether it's keeping executives engaged in what the security team is dealing with so that you know when security in a lot of organizations is a team that rocks up every couple of years and says hi you know cap in hand can i have three million dollars please and then the next thing you hear about them is when there's some terrible incident that's befallen your organization it's useful being able to do like sort of almost pr style things here's what's out there here's what we're seeing and we're dealing with it it's all good you know it sort of shows that people are getting value for money and keep security front of mind and uh, gives them a bit of a seat at the table you can't always be doom and gloom you have to be saying here's the thing you might have heard about it it's not that bad and stuff like that so that definitely helps with people setting their program and just generally bringing everyone along for the ride you can be a great uh, resource for getting security out there and helping different teams talk to each other but you need to be able to work with your colleagues and you can't be all uh, secret squirrel about it and keeping it to yourself and not sharing in some cases you need to keep things confidential but you also need to be able to collaborate with other teams if you're just like the people who go off and hide and you know don't tell anyone what you're doing ultimately you're just not going to have the support you need internally who should threat intel programs be communicating with in an organization Security architects are a great starting point. Uh, usually security architects are more experienced security people, but in some cases their knowledge is perhaps a little, not so much dated, but it's that coming from when they were sort of hands-on tools. So keeping them updated with what you're seeing out there, what's happening, because they're the ones who are designing the security controls for the systems that are coming in soon or as part of uplifts. Uh, when you're focusing on the detection side and by all means, it's useful to work with a SOC team, but they don't have the ability to impact the design. And ultimately, most of these things are usually better factored in at design time. It's quite hard to retrofit. Say you, you decide that, uh, uh, say, um, mobile phone porting is a big problem that you're seeing at the moment. Being able to get the security architects to go and fight for saying, oh, we need to have, a say, push notifications for our second factor instead of using SMS. If they can do that, and that's a 
design decision. It's no extra effort. It just happens early on. It's a lot better than trying to change the course of something that's already live and get people who enrolled via a different mechanism and so on. So yeah, architects are a great spot. They're just generally keeping executives and risk people involved, not so much from a directly actionable, like I'm not expecting them to do something about a particular vulnerability, but having an awareness of the threat groups, thinking about what types of things they care about. And the other one is like, what, what threat actors think about is not and care about is not necessarily what you care about you might be say doing uh, medical imaging and have you know a bunch of you know confidential health records of people with cancer someone's probably more likely to just want to go and uh, encrypt all your files and demand $20,000 to get them back they're not necessarily looking to capitalise on the private information you know that's what you care about absolutely but they're just they don't even care what the data is so sort of getting that a lot of people fall into the trap of going like well you know why would anyone bother attacking me who would care about me and when you can sort of Inform them like it, it can be anyone they don't care about you necessarily it's just a general you know here's the top it, it lets you bring that other perspective of what you're seeing out there to the management to risk people to the people who are doing the planning so they can factor that in rather than strictly sticking to what they feel is important about your organization how can you assess whether a threat intel program is effective tough uh working at how effective you are because you're ultimately trying to if you're managing to shape the direction of your security program sort of early on in the piece you aren't really going to be seeing those outputs you're not going to be able to see the value that you provide because the things never happened it's the same as any other sort of security thing if you're doing a great job no one really sees you potentially because you know you didn't have to save the day because everything was you know done beforehand i think in terms of metrics and stuff it's really hard uh one thing i think people can tune is the way that they do the delivery of their intelligence product. So it might be, say you are a company that does software and you're sort of uh, providing intel on the sorts of software vulnerabilities that other people like you have been making and you're trying to feed that back into your dev team so they don't make those errors. If you write like a fancy PDF and you've got lots of images and stuff in it and then someone has to go and copy and paste those bits into Jira to be a, a user story that gets implemented, then like that's a waste of time. You could just put it directly in their Jira and that'd be good. I certainly had the feedback when working in banking that uh, writing briefings for executives at the time, and this maybe ages me a little, that the uh, the full lead needs to be visible on the first page of a BlackBerry when someone opens the email. If it was clicking through to a portal, they probably weren't going to click. Realistically, they're reading it on their way between meetings and you want like a paragraph that sort of gives the, here's what it's about, here's roughly where we're positioned and sort of here's what needs to happen next or, you know, whether there's going to be a call to action. All sort of right in the front, like, much like a news story. You can't sort of write a giant treatise on this and expect someone to read through it. You'd need to be able to sort of uh, hit the key points within the first paragraph because that's all someone's going to read between meetings and if they need to they can come back to it later or forward it on but those sorts of things about delivery are relatively easy to try and tune and talk to key get champions in the right areas who are willing to engage you to help you better do this because people won't tell you if it's useless usually you just won't hear from them so you need to sort of go and seek that feedback and be willing to incorporate that feedback not being too hard-headed about it but yeah it's in terms of actual metrics it's it's really tough it's a lot more subjective i think how can one motivated person start a threat intel program on their own? 
ultimately try and find someone who you can be a champion internally so there's things like if you are a financial institution you can join the FSISA for a relatively modest amount like a few thousand dollars and then they get like a bunch of stuff from their peers elsewhere like that's a great way of them sort of getting started with getting input because data feeds are expensive they don't cover everything uh, you might be able to get them from your existing vendors I'd say that generally collection is a problem because you don't want to be spending all day every day trying to read blogs or reading Twitter to follow what's going on. You certainly need to have some sort of way of structuring it so that you can find things and correlate things. I've done it before, you know, using basic tooling and trying to do it in my head and it's it's no way to live. So I'd say that you want something to be able to curate those things. Uh, a lot of people use MISP, uh, which, yeah, we do a bit of stuff with MISP. Yeti, some people use. There's a lot of commercial tools, but they tend to be sort of focused more at the top end of town. If nothing else, use a wiki. Don't overdo the feeds you want to be able to as i said work out your what your objectives are and then go from there rather than sort of focusing so much on collecting all the data you can and trying to do something with it because you'll just drown trying to drink from the fire hose you need to work with data that you can actually derive some meaning from you can store it sensibly rather than having an inbox full of you know a hundred thousand emails you're never going to get a chance to do that are all unstructured what is it that the most successful threat intel programs do differently uh, I think they help everyone. Only they're they're a force multiplier. Uh, you don't sort of need to be the the hero that saves the day, but you know you're the one that people know that they can rely on and can confide in. Uh, I've seen plenty of. Uh, threat intel programs for instance inside financial organizations that will have a great relationship with the uh the help desk or the you know the incoming call center because they're the ones that people start calling up and it's something a bit odd and maybe it doesn't exactly match the script of anything that they've seen before but people are calling up talking about a strange type of behavior or something like if someone is engaged, they understand the game like, yeah, wait a minute, maybe the threat intel people would like to know about this. Uh, that type of uh, interaction that they can help drive can be absolutely fantastic for an organization. I've had stuff where I told people about it. I was like, why didn't we get briefed on this? I was like, well, you did three weeks ago. So when you're that far ahead that you can actually potentially do something about it before it happens to you, that's fantastic. If you've got the ability, you see, we talk about like the sort of the uh, information pyramids. They've got like, you know, uh, data at the bottom it's just bits and bytes in, uh, then you go to information where it's actually got some sort of uh, structure or meaning to it and then you go up towards uh, knowledge where we actually know oh this threat group is using this particular tool but then wisdom is what lets you actually predict what's going to happen and at the point when you can predict the future when you can see a pattern and you can say with some degree of confidence even knowing what your degree of confidence is vaguely that like i expect in three months this threat group is going to start targeting us because they're currently i don't know say going after spain and traditionally we see them go after you know spain and then they move their way here or things like that being able to actually predict in the future or you know like you're never going to be like a, a sort of a crystal ball and it's foolish to try and be but when you can give a bit of an expectation on what is likely to happen a lot of people fall into the case of going like yeah see we knew about this three months ago and it's like but if you didn't tell anyone does it matter so yeah you need to sort of be telling people ahead of time but yeah that's definitely a way of uh providing value and showing people that you know what you're talking about and you know just keeping everyone engaged is the main thing the biggest problem is secrecy everyone sort of thinks that they're a, a spook and it's not usually and just working elsewhere with other organizations as well you know working with your counterparts in you know you might be competitors in business but yeah allies when it comes to security so having good relationships if you need to call someone one day and like in a lot of 
places where I've helped out with intelligence programs, that's been a big part of my value is I helped out other organizations. And then when the time comes that you need a hand, you can be like, hey, you know, I've had times on a, a Friday night, I needed, I want someone to go and, you know, get something looked at or get something knocked on the head. And I had people, I'd done the favor for them previously of a weekend, I'd looked into something or alerted them to something they didn't know about yet. And you can call in the favors. And that's a, a great spot for intelligence to be able to sort of have that network of uh, peers that you can work with in order to try and make things happen. Whereas otherwise it would necessarily you know as a cold call it's pretty difficult to be talking to a domain name registrar to say hey you know if you want something uh knocked out for fraud on a saturday night a lot of places don't work weekends if you know people there you can be like hey can you get this knocked on the head for me you know thanks and when the time comes that they need some help with something in australia once again i can sort of go and help them with it so a lot of it's doing things for people that aren't directly in the interest of your organization but it pays off in terms of you know getting that sort of that capital and you can be the one that helps tie everything together and you know ultimately hopefully save the day do you have any parting advice for anyone involved in a threat intel program? Tough gig trying to do threat intel. It's there's no clear definite ways of doing it. Depends a lot on the organization, what the organization does, and a lot of it honestly is about being personable and being able to have good relationships with the right people in the right places in order to actually get an impact because it doesn't matter if you're right if everyone thinks you're an asshole and ignores you so you know you need to be able to maintain those relationships and also understand that other people have different priorities a, a software team is all about you know hitting that next release or a project is you know, their their kpi is you know did they hit the release window and you know without defects not oh did we incorporate these four things because uh the threat intel team think we need to be worried about quantum security at the moment so they have to change all of our cypher suites like you've got to be aware of what matters to other people as well as you and sort of temper your advice with that lens rather than alienating people because that's definitely a, a trend in you know it and infosec and especially intel is alienating people by sort of thinking that you're, you're always right and you need to need to be humble and work with other people rather than trying to boss them around and that's all for this interview Thanks so much for listening to the CoSiv podcast. If you want to learn more about CoSiv, you can head to CoSiv.com.